And here we are back again, 21. Now, I think a big happy birthday is in order for Mr. Lenjoir himself, you know. So everyone at home, oh, he's got the card as well. So everyone listening, you can't see the video. I've got um, cast a little birthday card and it's Yoram saying, hello, I see you soon, boy. And I uh, didn't obviously sound that like that, but you know. But that wasn't bad, though. It wasn't bad at all, mate. It's hello. Not bad Go hello. Out. Hello, you. I see you soon, boy. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> but yeah, fantastic news. Happy birthday, many happy returns. So me and mine to you and yours and all that. Um, so before we get stuck into the card itself, there's yes. been a, a bit of recent MMA. I don't know, how do I explain this? So something has resurfaced recently, which has been me getting knocked out, which is, <laughs> which is good fun. And I thought we'd touch on this little subject in itself. I think it's an interesting one. And the subject oh, itself God. is when when things go wrong in like a fight in itself and the aftermath in itself. I said it mm-hmm. a few times. So the reason I'm saying this topic as a whole is more so the fact things are recorded, things are then republished. And again, the fear of making these mistakes. Yeah. You yourself, have you had any clips of yourself resurface as such, things like this in a similar kind of instance where, I don't know, either a competition or a fight or something, you've either got stopped or something's been like, I don't know, done the rounds a bit. <sighs> yeah, I've had a few little things. Um, you know, the, 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 um, there's a couple of my fights that I've lost that have, have, have popped back up. But then again, I said that there's a couple of my fights that I've won that then I've reshared, reliving mm-hmm. the memory. And then obviously you've got your opponent to consider about that as well. You know, there's, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a photo that I really like when I fought Chris Thompson and we know Chris Thompson now he's like, you know, world level BJJ, you know, he's competing in Europeans and world championships at, you know, purple belt, brown belt and now black belt. So we know how good he is now. Uh, and there's, a, there's an awesome photo of when we fought together and, and I, I literally posted up once saying, I'm really sorry to post this again, mate, but I like the photo sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I've had it myself in, in both kind of ways. There's, a, there's one of my boxing matches where I got caught with an absolute beautifully timed, I think it was one of the most perfect uppercuts, um, the way he did it. He kind of, he, he, he did a, a bob and weave, but he bobbed under this way. And now normally when you come up sort of this side, you'd expect to, a left hook or something like that. And he rolled up and actually threw an uppercut with a lead hand, which was a really unusual... Yes, no, 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 to roll roll from your right to your left. Yeah, so like you're on the weight hits. Your weight's already circulated. Yeah, that's weird because you're already like half-loaded. Yeah, it was a really weird sort of like technique, but it was absolutely so perfect. Um, and you can actually see on the video and, and there's a guy in the crowd that got it and he's actually in slow motion as well, which is even worse. So it's kind of like he rolls and I, I'm throwing a double jab. So I throw a double jab, he rolls under it, like away from the jab sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I notice him roll. So I'm setting up my own uppercut to catch him on the way under. And as I get to about here, he pops up with a, 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 a near hand fucking uppercut and catches me. You see my head just go boom. And you see me like, whoa, <laughs> do a little fucking little boogie to myself. And that's in slow-mo. So that's popped up a few times. So yeah, I've had a few little bits and bobs pop up, but uh, yeah, it's just one of them things. It's the, it's the game we play. You know, you, you win, you literally win some, you lose some, unless you're Khabib and then you don't lose any. But, you know, everybody else is pretty much, you know, you win some, you lose some and, you know, you're going to lose by, you know, a, a, a guillotine or a, or, a, or a knockout or some sort of submission or something. And, you know, 
the people that win the fights are always going to repost it. And then the people that lose the fights are a bit going to be like, oh, that's me again. Oh, shit. Um, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's the world we live in. It's the world we, uh, it's the world we fight in, should I say. Live and die by the memes. You know, it's one of these things. With itself, it's... I keep saying itself so much. The, the point I'm making with this comment in itself, as if... I keep doing, yeah. I keep, I mean to do it. But yeah, the point being that there's so much in this of the fear of what happens if this goes viral, this, that, and the other, and then what? And also, again, it's the aftermath of do I want to come back? And also, how does what happens after you've come back and then seen it again? So the reason I flagged this is because this has come up two years after the event. The person yeah. who got knocked out in there being me, that isn't who I am now. Everything else, <laughs> different person entirely. Matured from that situation, won the, the, the fight afterwards. But again, you can still get the shitty comments, get this out and the other. Yeah. And the, the way to really, I don't know, bring this a bit, I don't explain this. So the laymen who see these things, they don't get the context of the fires, they don't get the context of anything else. No. And for anyone who is in a similar situation, who has had a clip where they've been caught, whether else go viral, go at least circulate, at least your mates have seen it. The thing to really appreciate is the ones who make the shitty comments aren't the ones who put themselves through it. The ones who nope. are put themselves in these situations to train, compete, and everything else, they get it. They get the bigger picture. They get getting caught, losing stuff is, you know, part, part, part of the thing. And the shitty people who wouldn't even show up to the gym won't, you know, they don't they don't get it. And the fact they don't get it is why it's so important that you do get it. You do give a shit when it goes well. You do cry when it doesn't go well. And that's the thing in itself, like, emotions-wise. Like, how are you after fighting itself? Is it still quite... How do you find it? Because I'm quite... I don't know, emotional, I feel. Like, it's quite a heavy burden, the whole investment of the, the camp, the preparation. Like, I think I've cried after all my fights and some competition just out of the adrenaline dump. But how do you deal with, like, post-fight sort of emotions? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a very emotional person when it comes to uh, the fight itself. You know, I've cried after, you know, not pretty much. I've cried after every single loss um, that I've ever had. Um, you know, and I've, I've cried after a couple of my wins as well, just because, mm -hmm. you know, certain elements. Um, I remember I thought my mum my unfortunately passed away some few, many, many years ago, shall I say. Um, and I actually fought on her birthday. Um, well, although she wasn't there, it's obviously quite a, an emotional day anyway. With you, your mum's birthday, when she's sort of passed away, people that, that have had parents pass away will understand that. And, um, you know, I kind of had to keep it all inside me because, you know, I was, you know, going there for the fight day and getting pre prepared and everything else. And I thought uh, a really good opponent in uh, Aaron Blackwell. Um, it was definitely a step up for me at the time. Um, and, you know, and we fought and to be fair, he, he probably was winning the fight. Um, you know, he hit me with some good shots. He was a little bit back and forward on the feet, but he was a lot crisper and a lot more technical than I was. So, you know, if, if, if I watched the fight back, I would say that he was he was winning it on points as far as the, the fight was going. But, you know, I managed to catch him in a triangle and, and got him to tap and, you know, and then the emotions sort of like release and I burst out in tears. So, you know, I've, I've had emotions both ways, winning and losing the fight. So, yeah, I'm an emotional person. And the fact that I've, I've probably retired about 10 times after every time I lose a fight, oh, I've fucking done with this and my head goes and oh, I've had enough of this shit. I'm fucking putting myself through all this training, dieting and everything else. And then I fucking made it. And it's it's not the fact that I lost a fight because I've lost fights where I've been, okay, cool. I lost that fight, but it was a fucking good fight. Um, and it's normally the fights that I've lost where I've made the mistake and I've lost it myself. I don't feel that the person beat me. I feel that I made the mistake and, you know, I've lost it myself. And and that was when I, I my head would go a bit. I'd get in the changes, I'd be upset. And then I'd start getting angry at myself. And I'd be like, ah, oh, fuck this. I've had enough. I'm not fucking doing it anymore. But um, 
So yeah, I'm 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 very fucking emotional after fights, win or lose. I mean, this is where that point really comes true. Because again, the fight itself isn't just, it's an investment is what it is. You're investing your physical time, energy, emotions, mental sort of know, focus and everything. And again, it sort of gets this boiling point that then what? Like, is the result worth that sort of stress? And again, in the moment, it's not. But after the fact, reflecting back, it always is. 100%. And again, it's at the time, I think, oh, if I'm knackered, I'll just call it a day now, it'll be fine. But you watch it back, I think I'm never doing that. Never, ever yeah. going to like, you know, flag early but this is why i feel this is quite a prominent sort of point and again this is it's an ongoing thing and you'll always get quote-unquote haters and everything else and the reason i don't know this is something it's a hard one to appreciate it's a hard one to really articulate unless you've had a similar experience yeah. and but i've had some very very nice people reach out including um UFC fight mr modesta pakowska's training partner of mine the loveliest bloke in the world again oh. really kind because he made it it's interesting what he told me and we're saying, like, oh, when he had his losses in Cage Warriors, no one wanted to know. People gave up on him, then got a couple of wins, got the belts, and everyone wants to know about him. Gets a loss, yeah. Jimmy Crute, no one wants to know again. But again, he wins the next couple and watch everyone's going to come back again. And for hearing someone from that on that sort of stage, because you think, like, my knockout loss on an amateur show with a X amount of hundred, tens of hundreds of thousands of people seeing it, like, online after the fact, I think, I, in my world, I think that that's pretty shit. If it was recent, I would be devastated. But for someone Modestus's level on the world stage to say that same thing of, you know, you go always get people like this. I mean, the very the words themselves aren't overly significant, but the where they come from is where the weight comes from. Of someone who's had that honesty and that kind of platform, I mean, that means a lot. And yeah. Again, this isn't sort of, you know, boo-hoo, poor me sort of thing. This is more that reflection point that, you know, this is part of the <laughs> it taketh and giveth away. But on the note of taketh and giveth away, we have the UFC to sort of cover from the weekend just gone. Yes. And in true fashion, before we get stuck in, was there any expectations you had before going in? Anyone you had your eye on before we started? Uh, and started? Let me have a quick gander down the uh, fight card. I just got to remind myself, it's been a bit all over the place, obviously, with me, my birthday weekends coming up mm. and stuff. Um, I've been a little bit all over the place when it came to uh, to fight cards. I have watched the majority of the fight card, especially the main card, mm-hmm. um, and I watched one or two of the the undercard as well. Yeah, there's obviously there's a few fights that I was quite looking forward to. The Eddie Wyland um, that stood out on the undercard for me, just because I like Eddie Wyland more than anything. You mm-hmm. know, he's he's an old veteran. He's a wily dog. Um, and, and and I just I've always enjoyed him even from WEC days, sort of like watching his sort of style. He's got he's got a very unique style to himself. He stands very upright. If you was to teach somebody boxing or MMA striking as such, you definitely wouldn't get them to watch tapes of Eddie Wyland. Um, but over the years, for him, it has worked. It's not not working so much these days. But then again, he's coming towards the end of his career. You know, he's been around for a long time. So he's somebody that I always like watching. So I have watched that one from the, from the undercard. I was looking forward to that one. And it didn't disappoint. It was a good fight. Um, very good fight. Um, and then from the main card, I was mega excited about the main event, Curtis Blades versus Derek Lewis. Um, I know, we, you know, we don't really say this very much anymore grappler versus sort of striker thing but um you know Curtis Blades you know he's got a great all-round game but he is very much a wrestler and one of the best wrestlers you know in the UFC and definitely in the heavyweight division probably the best um pure wrestler that we've got in the heavyweight division right now and Derek Lewis is just Derek Lewis isn't he you know he's you know the black beast he's got bombs you know he's got fucking punch lines when it comes to the microphone as well as 
in the cage. So he's, he's always great to watch. So yeah, a couple of good fights. What about yourself? Did you, uh, anybody stood out to you? I know obviously you're going to mention Tom Aspinall because you love him so much. He's my boy. Yeah. So obviously there's Tom Aspinall, his wife, Casey O'Neill, um, Eamon Zahabi. <laughs> there's a few people on this card. I was really looking forward to seeing And yep. there's different reasons why I like to see him. And obviously when it comes to the heavyweights, there's, they don't really excite me the same kind of way purely because it's normally big, I don't know, unsettling knockouts to watch or it's just gas tank getting <coughs> lost. When it comes to guys like Tom Aspinall, that's where that division gets more exciting. And yeah. with Katie O'Neill as well, obviously following her journey a lot more, training at um, Extreme Couture, training yeah. like everywhere and everything else. It's interesting to see what approach she came out with. Essentially getting someone like Shana Dobson who's just got a crazy pace and done disgusting pressure because those are the sort of opponents that really bring out what you actually do when push comes to shove. Because if you're fighting someone quite tentative, someone a bit patient, maybe a counter-fire, you can get too, a bit too relaxed and play a bit, I don't know, you, you can use a bit lower percentage things and get away with it to an extent. Whereas someone's on you, closing that space, cl- putting that pressure on, you haven't got the chance to do that. You've got to, you know, push comes to shove, you've got to show up. And yep. obviously, Eamon Zahabi, I've seen him, I think he fought, was it UFC London a little while ago? I think I've seen him live. And again, he's one of these where like, he's just so sharp. And obviously, with the Zahabi as the um, the X in his back, he showed up. And when he showed up, he showed up. He looked slick. He looked dangerous. And have you seen the fight? His fight against them, Jacob Rodriguez. I'm not that one. That's one I haven't watched yet, but it's one I need to watch. Mm, it's sharp. I definitely need to watch it now you've said that. Mm. I'm not going to go into too much detail. Obviously, if you've seen it, you've seen it. But again, it's, it's very clinical. And this is the thing with MMA, because normally what you'll find for anyone who's not overly familiar with the intricacies of this, you'll get people who have a technical background and then we'll have an MMA application sort of how to apply it. Because again, if you've got traditional fundamentals for boxing or Muay Thai, whatever else, those habits aren't necessarily transferable to MMA. So you find a way of molding it together, but you need the technique to then be able to mold it. Otherwise you're a weird kind of, I don't know, I haven't got the fundamentals still. But the way Eamon managed to apply his sort of striking was so clinical and just had the MMA sort of concepts in mind as well. It was a really nice... Really nice little performance. I mean, it was only a minute and a, was it a couple of minutes, three minutes? But yeah, it was uh, yeah. minutes five. Yeah, it was short work, but it was sharp work as well. And um cool. the John Casten I can't kind of say his fucking name, Castaneda against um Eddie Wyman. So this fight yeah. was a funny one. I'm jumping around cards a bit, just for the fights because we mentioned these whenever order. This fight was an interesting one. I've got so I've got that one mixed up. I was thinking of um Julian Rosa one and um Nate Lander, Lander, whatever his name is, because this fight was so chaotic, so back and forth. And like, it's one of these where you could stop at any point. It's such a strange time, but I'm glad Julian Arosa got the finish, but it could have carried on a bit longer. It's a weird one. You know, those flash knockdowns where they get back up and don't quite get back up properly and they get stopped a bit too early. It's one of those ones. Oh, okay. So it's a bit of mad chaos. And again, I think um, Castello Wyndham wasn't too far similar to that one. I have to rewatch that to remind myself. But outside of that, Casey O'Neill, we'll go into her just for now, whilst it's fresh in my mind. Her sort of style was so, it was very MMA well-rounded. What I mean by that, it was clean striking yep. into transitions. The transit. This is where the MMA skill set versus the independent backgrounds get a bit sort of jaded and everything else. If you can transition your striking to takedowns as cleanly as possible, that is MMA. And if you yeah. can disengage and control the sort of distance, that transition, that's where people who train specific disciplines fall short and get caught out. This is where someone like Blades gets knocked out by Lewis because 
if you're so wrestling orientated, you can get away with it just only so much of an extent. And you get Ben Askren flying knee and you just get a little bit like, okay. <laughs> That's where the transition comes in. But this is where Casey and I did really well to control, maintain position. But also what impressed me was at the end of the first round, she basically had like a 10-8 performance, dominating. But the That's second right. round came up composed. That is a sign of maturity, what you want from that kind of level of athlete. Because when you're doing so well, so close to a finish, trying to blow your load, trying to get that finish straight away, and then it doesn't happen, is then what? And this was the same conversation with Tom Aspinall, that his fights don't last more than a minute and a bit normally. So when it goes into a second round, then what happens in the head? So this is where those conversations get really interesting. Is there anything you want to add to any of those fights I mentioned? No, no, the, the Casey one, there's one of the prelims that I have watched, and yeah, she looked great. Um, I know she's touted as like the one of the biggest prospects to come out of Australia at the minute, even though she is from obviously Scotland. Scotland. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, I think she moved over to Australia when she was 10 years old. So, you know, she's, she's definitely lived in, in Australia longer than she's lived in Scotland. Just, she's 22, I think, one of the youngest girls so, on yeah. roster. Yeah, something like that. Uh, but no, you like, I'm just, just going off what you said. She looked really, really good. She looked composed. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. Um, her transitions between striking and wrestling and then wrestling in the ground and everything else was good. Um, Bisbing just touched on a few little points where she could have controlled a little bit more and she got a little bit over-enthusiastic. But again, at 22 years old on, on the stage that she's on, um, she did great. Again, somebody like Shayna Dobson, who, you know, she's been around. She, she's, you know, she's had a fair few fights in the UFC. So she is a lot more experienced than her um, and, you know, did a great job and obviously got the, Got a really, really good win. Um, TKO in the... Got it just in front of me. Second round. Mm. So, yeah. Um, TKO in the second round. So, yeah. Great, great performance. Um, and then the other ones from the prelims, I've not really seen. Um, and then the main card. Yeah, Tom Aspinall, obviously, again, um, he looked great. Um, he looked great on the feet. He looked sharp. This is exactly what you're saying. Like, normally you either get somebody who's going to, you know, walk in there, throw big bombs... And, and knock you out, or they're going to throw big bombs, not knock you out, and then gas. Um, and Tom Aspinall's, he's not one of those. He's, he's, he's like a, he's like the sort of the heavyweight that sort of Cain Velasquez invented, you know, the, the heavyweight with cardio that does mm. move like a middleweight rather than a heavyweight, but he's still got the power and the strength of a heavyweight. Um, you know, Stipe Miocic is very similar to that, especially his last fight. He'd actually dropped weight and looked a lot smaller. Um, and then obviously just outworked DC and, you know, put it on him a little bit in that last fight with DC and stuff like that. So, you know, these these sort of like, again, maybe a little bit of tweeners sort of thing, you know, maybe with a, with a, with a bit of a cut, they probably could make light heavyweight, um, but they decide to, you know, not bother cutting and stay around the 220, 230 mark. Um, so, you know, uh, and I like that sort of heavyweight. You know, don't get me wrong, I love it when, you know, Derek Lewis goes in there and knocks somebody out and looks like the guy's dead. But <laughs> um, like you did in the main event, mm. but um, I do like that. I do like the fact that these some of these heavyweights, you know, do move like middleweights, and, and they've got the cardio to go with it and everything as well. So yeah, great performance. And for anybody that wants to know that he, he finished with a submission against Andre Olosky, who, who doesn't get submitted very often, to be honest. Um, and I think he just caught him by surprise. He's like you said, you know, Thomas Bernal. We know, you know, he finishes everything within the first couple of minutes, and and he he rocks Olosky pretty hard. Um, in the first couple of minutes, but Oloski being the veteran that he is, he managed to grab old, recover, you know, find his feet again, and then you know, you know, land some good shots of his own in the first round. And the end of the first round, obviously Aspinall won the first round, no problem. Um, 
with hurting him and, and you know just being that little bit sharper and a little bit quicker. Um, and then obviously the second round he came out and I think it was a great change up of, of strategy to be honest. And he, and he showed that he's got grappling and jiu-jitsu that goes with his striking because everybody thinks of him as a boxer because he does finish most people with you know knockout in the first round like we've seen and you know hitting that massive power double which was a great power double and caught Oloski sort of off guard and then as Oloski was trying to sort of stand back up he just you know swung the arm round and got a really tight rear naked choke so it was a it was great to show other skills that he's got in the bag as well and his dad's his uh, jiu-jitsu coach if I'm not wrong mm. um over at, um where where is he from again Carbon. Uh, Carbon, yeah, um, over at Team Carbon. So his, his dad's a jiu-jitsu, so give his, give his dad a shout-out on the microphone once he'd, uh, once he'd actually got the sub as well. So, yeah, it was a great performance. Really enjoyed it. Big up, big Andy Aspinall. So, yes. a bit of background on Tom, for anyone who's not familiar. We had first day base, and now we're like best mates. Um, <laughs> so, Tom Aspinall is a black belt in jiu-jitsu, trains boxing yep. with the Furies. He's, you know, he is the man. Now, with his strategy and the way he applied it, I liked it a lot for loads of different reasons. And with that power double, the way he set it up was perfect. No telegraphing, but one little detail with this, which people will, you don't train so much, won't appreciate as much, is more distance management. When you're doing pure wrestling, you don't ever shoot out from the open off of nothing. You normally have some kind of grip, some kind of setup, some kind of something, because again, you'll just see it. And in boxing, you know your jab range, but you can't hit unless you know your range. Again, if you fully extend your arm, you know that's where you're going to hit. But if you don't know that or where they are, you can't quite make that connection. So what a lot of MMA fighters be able to do quite nicely is they get the spatial awareness from their striking and then their shoots, they can sort of gauge and set up that sort of way in itself. So again, with Tom being so sharp with his hands, that helps his spatial awareness so he knows full well when he's in shooting range. And again, with this sort of feints and the level changing and that kind of thing, you can really disguise it nicely. So that kind of blast impact. Because again, regardless of your takedown defense as a whole, if you've got the best part of 100 kilos coming at you with full force, it's going to move you. Whether or not it takes you down, it's going to move Nearly you. Age. <laughs> this is kind of it. And with all the grappling details and everything else, what Tom Aspinall did really nicely was the way he distributed his weight on Arvlovsky. He had to base in one hand. And whilst the other hand was being managed, he had his neck completely open. So he just yep. jumped on that. So it doesn't matter who you are. If you're having to base or accept bottom position, you're going to base. And then just jumped in that window. But what surprised yep. me was Arlovsky accepting the choke almost straight away. As much as it might have been tight straight away and everything else, I'm surprised he didn't go two on one because the way Tom had it was when you have a rear naked choke for anyone not familiar, normally you have the, the other hand, not choking hand, the other hand behind the head. Because if it's on top, you can go two on one to control that and strip the choke off. So I'm surprised Arlovsky didn't go two on one on that and at least drop off for it. But again, it must have been a lot tighter than I can imagine. But still, it was an interesting sort of details were there. And you used to see Oloski shout, fuck, as soon as it happens, which made me laugh quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Huge no, scalp. Yeah, 100% why, why I agree with you. That I did think it was a little bit weird that Oloski didn't sort of try and strip the hand first. Mm. Um, but you got to remember, these guys are heavyweights. You know, Tom Aspinall gets that around your head and just a bit of a squeeze. You know, oloski has been in the game long enough to know that that's tight. I don't think I'm going to get out of it. Might as well just have another day. It's no problem. There's no, you know, Alaska, he's, he's been around that long that he understands these type of things, you know, and, and, and he's not necessarily fighting for the title now. You know, he's, he's not on a run towards the title. You know, he's in there, he's having fun. He doesn't need to fight anymore. You know, he's got to that point of a career where he doesn't need to. He fights now because he enjoys it. He obviously enjoys getting in there. He enjoys doing the work in the gym, you know, and he's at that point of his career. 
And when he's got a choke around his neck, he knows it's on, you know, you know, these, these guys that are on, on the up and stuff like that, they, they don't want to believe that it's on and they're, they, you know, fighting for dear life. And then, you know, maybe they go to sleep or maybe they tap later on, but somebody like Oloski, you know, he understands that the choke was on. He didn't really have much of a choice. Even if he managed to strip that top hand, Aspinall probably would have just switched to the gable grip and, and, and the choke would have still been on anyway. So I think that was why he probably tapped a little bit quicker than what other people might have. But that's that, that's just what I thought once I first saw it. That's to say, you never know what's going through the heads and everything else. And again, someone that experienced one knows what he's doing. But it's a very interesting um, transition where Tom Aspinall goes now. Because who do you reckon he's got next? Do you reckon Cyril Garnet? Do you reckon he's got... Um... Uh, Greg Hardy, like, where do you reckon? Because again, it depends on names, depends on rankings, everything else. Because again, as much as you want to always go upwards, it's got to be a bit give and take. So it depends on who they give him next. Who do you reckon will be a good heavyweight test for him? Do you know what? Now you've said it. I think the Greg Hardy would all be awesome mm -hmm. just because he's got a name. He's not necessarily got a name in MMA, but he's got a huge name because of his, obviously, his NFL career and then other things outside the cage. Yeah, uh, but he's everybody knows he everybody knows yeah. who he is, and especially in America. And obviously, Tom Aspinall, you know, it's all about you know breaking into America, sort of thing, into into the the the, the American public's sort of mind. Um, and that that would be a great fight. I just don't see that happening because Greg lost his last fight, and the UFC, although they don't sort of spoon feed him, he's still very early in his career and. Again, because he's got the name, they want to protect a little bit more than they normally would, you know, somebody from Brazil or somebody that's not got the, the huge name that Greg Hardy's got. So I don't see them giving somebody like Greg Hardy to Aspinall. But that would be a great fight just for the fact that Aspinall would get his name out there more. Um, bar that, I don't really know that heavyweight at the minute. Um, it would be nice to see him, see him say, it'd be nice to see him step up a little bit. But he's just fought Andre Oloski. Come on, the guy's an absolute legend in the heavyweight division. Do you know what I mean? So I, I really don't know where he's going to go from now. Uh, from here, I should say, um, where to go to next. But it's going to be interesting when, when, when they finally figure somebody out for him. And he took no damage. You know, he got, he got caught one or two times, but no damage whatsoever. So I'm hoping to see him back in there pretty quick. I mean, this is what the sort of opponent you want at that stage in your career. You want a, a weathered veteran in the sense of all due respect. You want someone who's got a big name, well-respected, but past their prime, who's still got, you know, miles in the tank left over, but even still, they're not going to be as dangerous as they used to be. Because then you get the best of both worlds. You get your the test you want at certain resistance. You get your name escalated. And again, there's no harm. You know, it's a win-win situation. You lose, oh, he's a legend. It's fine. Oh, you beat him. He's a legend. That's amazing. Happy days. So exciting to see what maybe, happens with that. Go on. Maybe a JDS. Ooh, that's a shout. It's a big shout. Yeah. Because again, it's it's on the same sort of level as as Oloski. He's an ex-champion, two-time champion, I think. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, mm. yeah, two-time champion. Um, you know, and he still could beat literally anybody on his day. Um, he is a little bit more, like you say, weathered at the moment. Veteran of the game, everybody knows who he is. So that would uh, that would be an interesting one. And he's a boxing background. You know, again, Tom can show off his hands. Everybody says that JDS used to have, you know, the best hands in the heavyweight division. So that would be Tom Aspinall's now trying to come up with, you know, coming up through the ranks as one of the better boxers in the heavyweight division. So that might be an interesting one. Do you see? 
Definitely. Yeah, I, see, yeah. I see I heard it here first, boys. There you go. And girls, don't <laughs> discriminate. Um, so, regards the rest of the card, obviously, we're not going to go into too much detail, but obviously, the main event itself, Razor Blades against, you know, the Black Beast, Hot Bulls himself. So, <laughs> going into that fight, there's a few things I liked a lot. One was how serious Lewis actually takes everything. Because, again, as much as he is Mr. Meme Man, he's got millions of followers on Instagram from sending all his, you know, his personality. You yep. see the camp, you hear him talk about how he's losing weight, he's trying to be working his cardio, that kind of thing. Things taken really seriously. And like you're saying there about Tom and the sort of the tweeners who opt to go up because then you get a bit more hydration, not less stress in the diet, a lot better performance, everything else. It seems to, I don't know, side better that way. Yep. Two questions with this. One, do you think those shots were necessary after the fact? And two, do you use fault? Do you think they are? Do you think it's Herb's fault for not getting involved sooner? Or do you think it's... Um, Derek Lewis is like moral compass. He should have held back. What do you think? Super necessary. Um, no, I um, <clears throat> It's a tough one, man. I mean, right. He caught him with that uppercut. You couldn't see instantly that he was completely KO'd, mm. obviously, because he was sort of like... Hunched over still, yeah. It's a posture. When he hit the floor, yes, you could see he was out cold. Okay. But the way he kind of fell forward, he still could have been conscious. He could have just been hurt and falling forwards. He wasn't until he kind of hit the floor and rolled and his arm was sort of like, you know, straight, a bit rigid and stuff like that. And then it's like Derek Lewis said, it's really hard to switch on and off in the heat of the moment. Because if you think about it, it's a split second. He's hitting with his huge uppercut. The guy's sort of fell forward. Derek Lewis has gone, ah, bam, bam. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, it's hard to, to pull that power, especially somebody that big. You know, he, he, you know he, to be fair for his size, he moves pretty quick. So that makes it even harder for him to kind of stop that initial reaction. And like you say, it's, it's so hard to sort of switch it off instantly like that. Um, as far as Herb Dean is concerned, yes, he could have been a couple of paces closer. When when Curtis Blaze is shooting in, you're not expecting him to get put to sleep instantly the way he was. Do you know what I mean? So again, it's you know, two punches after after he's hit the floor isn't a lot of damage. If they took five or six on the floor, then yeah, you can say the referee was really late and maybe Derek Lewis should have hit him a couple of times, then sort of realized he was completely out and stopped. But two punches, how how fast can you do punches? That's two punches. It's like literally less than a second. And even, even coming down from the floor like that, it's only a, a second at most for those two punches. One second's a, a fucking quick time to try and pull somebody that size off. And if you're a few paces away, trying to get close that distance, we've all seen the memes, obviously, he's like, you know, sprinting towards mm. them. So he did the best he could do. It could have been, you know, maybe a yard, yard or two closer. But with guys that big, you don't want to get too close. You're going to fucking catch a punch yourself. You know, you've got to, you've got to remember the size of these guys and they can turn and they are quick for their size. You know, it's not, it's not big pub blokes that are mega slow in a fucking alley in the middle of town on the 21st of June. You know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's fucking two elite athletes that are huge that can move really quick. So you have to keep that distance as far as a referee goes. So I don't know. I don't, I don't really blame either of them, to be honest. That is my sentiment exactly, I feel. Um, I agree 100% with Derek Lewis because not even a case of you should or shouldn't. It's 
matter of fact, you keep going until the referee stops. 100%. I don't really care too much about excess damage you do to your opponent at that point. Because if the roles were reversed, the best you'd get back is an apology. So I don't give a shit. If, they, if it would be different the other way around, if Curtis would have knocked um, Lewis out and would have hit extra shots or something, it's all like, you know, it's all well yeah. and good like playing like the victim card, but no, it's all all fair and love and war and stuff. And again, it's what would you rather have? Would you rather you throw those shots and people call you a cunt or not pull those, not hit those shots? He recovers and then either goes to a decision or at least you end up losing that fight. Then you spend yeah. the whole time regretting not doing it in the first place. Nice. And in regards to fault, like, you know, you know what you sign up for. Herb Dean yeah. stopped it as soon as he could. I don't see anything wrong with it, full stop. I don't see nothing with either. And it's always better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. <laughs> I mean, that's a good rule to live by anyway, isn't it? <laughs> um, what was I going to say? There's a few points of that in itself, but again, it's more general prefaces because when it comes to competing, you need to follow the rules. That is yeah. 100%. You're going to compete under certain rules that you follow the rules, and including that rules, protect yourself at all times, obey the referee's commands, touch gloves if you want, <laughs> go protect your respective corners, and, you know, crack on. Yeah. And this is kind of it. You know what you sign up for. And, that, and that's sort of it. Like, you know, it works both ways. Yep. Um, so with lockdown easing in the UK and a few comps been announced in bits and bobs, yep. what do you see as the... And a return to action for the people who haven't been training. So competitions, say back in like August and like Ju- I think July time and stuff, mm-hmm. is it going into I don't know, going up a weight maybe? Is it changing styles? Is it a full camp? Say just a standard jiu-jitsu competition. What would you say is a return to action for that? How long do you reckon you need to prepare for a competition from scratch, from sofa to the mats? I think it really, really depends on what you've been doing during this lockdown. Mm. If you've been a bit like me and just been a complete couch potato and been doing absolutely nothing but eating chocolate, crisps, biscuits and cake, then yeah, you're going to need a little bit longer. If it's somebody like yourself, you know, that's been keeping active, going outside, doing your PTs, doing your bits and bobs, um, still part of an elite group of, of, of fighters. Uh, so training then, you know, generally you would say, you know, do a little bit of a, a training camp, a fight camp, depending on whether you're doing jiu-jitsu or a full MMA fight or whatever, and then get back on it. So I think it really depends on where you've been. I have noticed in the last like week or so that a lot more of the people that um, that I know that fight amateur and, and pro and stuff like that have been posting a few more training bits and bobs up. So I think they're all sort the of pre-COVID like, oh, pictures. Yeah. Oh shit, we're actually back. Fucking, we're going to be back soon. I think I need to get back in the gym. You know, so, yeah, I think I've seen one or two more people like, oh, I haven't seen you train for a little while or, you know, go for a sprint and stuff. And and now they're posting, oh, yeah, I'm sprinting and getting ready and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what sort of shape uh, people come out of this lockdown in. Um, but, yeah, like you say, you know, if you've not been doing much and you've piled on a few lockdown pounds, then I guess maybe a little move up in weight if you still want to compete and, and sort of break yourself back, back in gently if it's sort of jujitsu and stuff. You know, there's no problem in going up in a weight class, you know, having a, just getting the cobwebs out, having a little roll in a, in a weight group above. And then sort of like once you're back in the swing of proper training, the gyms are open and you can actually, you know, have contact sports in the gym, then, you know, back down to your natural weight and then, you know, aim for a better result or even, you know, stay at the same way you are. It depends on how good you uh, feel at that weight. 
So yeah, it really depends on what everybody's doing, been doing during lockdown. So to add to that, which I agree with 100% is more, don't feel the need to make up for lost time. No. I don't want to see people rushing to compete when they're not necessarily in the right shape for it, mental state for it. Cause again, cause you've lost this year and a half. That means you need to then compete X amount now, as soon as you can to try and catch up on yourself. That doesn't make sense. Again, it's a very internal thing. Myself who's gone through the same kind of process as why I'm sort of saying this. Because again, the temptation to, oh shit, okay, I haven't competed in a while. I need to get my medals for Instagram. Otherwise I'll lose all my birds. No, no. One, girls don't really tend to care about jiu-jitsu. Even the girls who care about jiu-jitsu don't care about your jiu-jitsu. Like you do. <laughs> like you try and chat to a girl on Tinder and tell her it's not karate. They don't, they don't give a shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't give a shit. <laughs> it's one of them ones. But it's a very internal thing. It's very much like, okay, if you've been training regularly, you're in a certain level of like, again, it's a, a reference point. You're sparring with someone similar weight to you, similar grade to you. You sort of get a gauge how you're getting on. If it's competitive rounds or not, but you sort of, you get a gauge. And yeah. you know, honestly, if you're in a position physically to compete, but also mentally, if you think, okay, I'm, I want this competition for me, for my testing of myself. Okay, everyone's got their personal reasons, but just be mindful you're not doing it for the wrong reasons. In regards to returning to action, again, you certain competitions you can get away with without too much damage you just get stuck in really i mean that's the main yeah. thing regards of i don't know competition for you have you ever actively competed for the wrong reasons as such for friends for reputation as such or has it all been internally for you for your own competitions um yeah maybe one or two of my mma fights i probably shouldn't have taken because I wasn't really training properly. And I thought, you know, I need to do it just to keep sort of relevant type mm. thing. And then I've ended up just making stupid mistakes and, and not really training with the right people and, you know, sort of training with a, a group of people that were great. There's no, no knock on them, but, you know, being a little bit of a, a big fish in a small pond type scenario mm. um, with, with people that aren't really putting it on me in the gym. Um, and sort of like staying within my comfort zone and not stepping out and, and training with, you know, people that I know that can beat me up in the gym sort of thing to make me push me harder and, and get me ready for fights completely. Um, so, yeah, I guess one or two of my fights have, have probably been a little bit like that. Um, but I just like competing no matter what. So for me, it was never it was never too sort of really you know, be in the limelight or anything. I just like competing. I just like getting in there and just, you know, testing myself. So I was always kind of ready anyway. But one or two of the fights, I, I probably should have maybe not took that fight and thought about it and actually trained, you know, for a couple of months at a, a different place and maybe trained with some different training partners and then took a fight a bit later on rather than sort of going, nah, nah, I'm all right, I'm all right. I can just go for it now. I mean, this is where those conversations get so important. It's at what stage you're doing it for. Because obviously when it comes to establishing a career, which you've said there's, this is a bit more on the nose of what I'm trying to get is staying relevant. The temptation that, obviously there's recency bias. If you fight twice in the same month, you're considered the next GOAT. Everyone has this sort of bias in itself. But again, people see you lose a fight. I think you're washed up. It's how the world yeah. works. It's a very stupid thing. Yeah. But again, if you don't appreciate what that's the reason you're being motivated by, you can easily jeopardize your own career and think, okay, I'm going to fight as often as possible so people don't forget me, but you don't perform to your actual standards, to your actual abilities even. Yeah. And then what? You've just given everyone a more frequent <laughs> representation of someone else because it's not you. 
and then what are we both for? And again, this sounds from an outside perspective, it sounds pretty obvious. The thing is, okay, if you're not feeling sharp, you're not feeling fresh, everything else don't get stuck in. And that's all well and good from the sofa, happy days. But if you're the one who's trying to establish a career, trying to build a name, trying to do all this sort of stuff, because this is what it is essentially. When you're a professional fighter and everything else, you are not a fighter per se. You are now a self-employed businessman. You need to be able to promote yourself, the product being you. And if you can't promote that and make money, you can't feed yourself, can't feed the family. You've got to, you've got to sort it out. So again, you have these extra pressures and everything else to try and take into consideration. So again, as much as it sounds very, I don't know, almost arbitrary, but it's, it's a lot more significant than it's hard to appreciate. Am I right in saying that, do you feel? No, 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 I agree with you there, definitely. Yeah. There's a thing, in, I think um, Sugar Ray Leonard said, that once you become professional, you become a bit of a businessman, which also takes away from it, which is very prominent. And this is where you need to be very careful. This is where the people around you can really help you I don't know, manage the other areas you don't really want to be dealing with because this is like sponsorships. This is, you know, just general income promotion, this sort of thing. If you spend yeah. the whole training session just getting pictures done and like posing and stuff and you realize where well, you get, you're getting beat up inspiring, you think, mm, maybe there's a priority shift somewhere else. But again, it's all about managing these things. And so mm-hmm. it's a very tricky thing in itself. Like the transition from amateur to pro from that kind of perspective what do you think are the necessary steps from that stage? So, okay, so I'll give you a scenario. Here I am. I've won my, let's say, 10th amateur fight for a nice round number. I've decided now my next fight's going to be professional. I'm going to quit my job and go full-time fighting. What is my first priority, do you reckon, from there onwards? I've made this internal decision. This is what I'm going to do next. I think it's the structure around you. It's whether you can... I hate saying this, but it's, it's a lot of it is around money. Is can you afford to be a full-time trainer and fighter? And when I say trainer, I don't mean somebody who's coaching people. I'm talking about training full-time. What you need to do to be an elite professional, because you're not doing this just to be a professional. If you're going to do this, you want to get up and be as elite as you possibly can. You know, we, we, we understand that not everybody's going to be, you know, a world champion, but everybody could be a world champion if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so it's the first thing is, can you support yourself? And if you can't support yourself, have you got the structure around you that is going to help support you while you're trying to achieve these goals? And that's, I guess that's the first thing is, have you got the structure to do it? So with that, I like that a lot. And there's a term, I think it's Tim Ferriss, it's called Freedom Numbers. And it's the minimum amount you need to make to pay you that which you have to pay for. So how much does your bills cost you? How much is your rent? How much is your food for the month? All this kind of stuff. You work at your overhead. So off the bat, again, this is, okay, you decided to go pro. You decide you want to quit your job. Okay, what bills do you have to pay? How much do you have to pay? How much do you have to pay for your gym membership? Again, anyone listening now in a similar boat, get a pen and paper, work it out. You work out how yep. much you have to pay to sort of fund that as a bare minimum. If you stick to everything within an inch, like, okay, I'm having the same food from the same place, cost the same amount and so on and so forth. Obviously, it mixes a bit, but round up, why not? Have, have some fun yep. with it. So there you go, look at your freedom numbers. And what do you need to do to make that amount of numbers up? Also, your training times, also your coaching, however you want to get your source of income. And the reason I wanted to do this sort of segment in itself, this is more applicable. I want people who listen to this podcast, who do actively train and compete and want to take things to the next step, have a bit of guidance, a bit of structure. Because with this, it's it seems very much, okay, I come I become pro, and I get all the sponsors and everything gets all worked out nice and hunky-dory. But lo and behold, <laughs> there you are on your Audi beans trying to like, you know, get by and trying to afford something or you're living like yep. a 
or you live in the gym and got all sorts of ringworms and this that and the other but we move we move so yeah. so that's in itself that's keeping it financially sort of sound keep it stable so that's the amount to keep you afloat regards of camps and training and, and taking things differently what do you feel is the biggest transition in training from amateur to training as a professional what do you feel is the biggest i don't know priority shift it's, i would say having somebody you trust in having a coach that can tell you what you're doing whether you're doing it right or wrong not necessarily not necessarily right or wrong but helping you to evolve you and elevate you to the next level okay so there isn't a right and a wrong way because some things work for some people something won't don't work for other people sort of thing. So there's no necessarily right and wrong way, but having that person that you tr- trust in, like a, a head coach that's going to, is looking out for your benefits, not just looking out for how much money they're making at the gym. I guess that would be the first sort of stage of, of going from an amateur to a, to a full professional. You need that person in your corner that you completely believe in. Now, again, the, that's a very perfect point. And the reason I say that is the guidance. Because again, you've got all this now newfound time and all this energy. So now you need some guidance. Again, you need someone to steer the ship. This is the point. Where's your energy go? Where does your priorities go? Where does your opponent go? Who do you want to go for? What stage do you want to go? Again, the temptation is I want to fight the toughest guys, get all the wins, go to the cage or go to UFC, happy days, go for the sunset. But lo and behold when you get shafted with some polish guy who's oh and oh but turns out to be like 50 and oh and like some variation of mma or something like this and you get shafted <laughs> have fun with yep. that <laughs> because it's your friday want to make a quick bit of commission on that fight that's not a manager <laughs> that's someone just trying to scare <laughs> say a bit short yeah um you can almost imagine now and sort of pitbull rash guys they're sat in there and just absolutely mauling you because again it's one of those sort of universal things that if you know someone who's like like an Eastern European background, like proficient in MMA, you think, oh God, this, this is going to be a long round. Like it's, yep. it's just going to be horrible. <laughs> it's true. But as I say, the, the point with this in itself is someone who you can trust to then guide you in the right direction with your best sort of interest in mind. Obviously it's going to be business incentives and stuff, but again, as long as your well-being is looked after. Um, the initial point I wanted to make with that is the shift in standards you accept. So when you're an amateur, and you're doing three threes at a certain pace or certain degrees. The real distinction with this is when we do our shoot boxing rounds at BST, I think it's two minute rounds. And the aim is if you're an amateur to try and at least go for and successfully complete three takedowns. If you're professional mm-hmm. five and up, things like that, the standard you accept, the standards you're aiming for and that kind of thing in itself. Cause again, if you're getting by doing X amount, that's got you so far through amateur Yes, you can maintain that and do so well through pro, but again, if you're not increasing the resistance, the gain doesn't come. The same with lifting weights. Just in the yeah. same way, so the time you're not going to make the same progression, you hit a plateau. Is there any other sort of shifts you found in your training in that transition sort of period? I didn't have a transition period. Oh, yeah, he was pretty much the same day. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm old school. It just, it just, I, I literally, my first fight was a, a professional rules, three, five minutes. The only thing it was, it was, um, the old cage rage rule. So there was no elbows on the ground. Um, so yeah, I didn't really have this transition from amateur into professional. I think I've been training MMA about, I don't know, a month, maybe two months and I had my first fight. Um, so yeah, completely different sort of situation from, from what I am to, to what you are now. Um, and, and like I say, the best thing I could say to any sort of like amateurs that are out there listening and obviously yourself, you've already got 
a great team behind you at BST and some some great training partners and some great coaches down there. Is is find yourself a good good gym and a good team. Like I said, like a, somebody you trust in, somebody that you know's got your back in your corner. You know, whether it be a manager or whether it be a, a trainer or you know somebody like that or or both together, a trainer manager. You know, somebody who looks after both sort of interests for you. That's that's the main thing I would say would be sort of like just to um, and 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 like you just said, we're you know changing your levels of you know when you do your shoot box rounds and it's two minutes and amateurs should go for three takedowns and professionals go for five takedowns, but it's having a manager to go okay right now you're great amateur you, you know you're hitting three takedowns every single round you have been for you know your last fights and you're ten and oh or you know however many amateur fights you've had and now you want to step it up and it's having that coach to then tell you, right, okay, now you need to do this. You need to elevate your level. This is what I want to see from you now. It's not as you have to do it, you know, being mm. so strict. It's, this is what I want to see from you now. For you to take it to the next level, I want to see this. And this is an improvement on what you was before. So it's having, again, it all just boils down to having that one person in your corner that you trust enough to, when he says something, you believe it and, in, you know, he's saying it because he knows you can do it and, and trust that you can do it and that you believe in yourself that you can then do it. To sort of expand on that point a bit more, the numbers are fairly arbitrary. The real yeah. priority with this is the progression. And this is why, again, I want to make this very clear that what we say threes and fives and that, that's just an example. Yeah. The idea being that if you're used to X amount at your level you're at now, you need someone to help prioritize your transition to the next step. Maybe it's three, maybe it goes to four, maybe it goes to three, but it's held down for longer. Maybe it's certain controls. Again, if you get one <laughs> takedown in like professional and you keep them down the whole round and finish them, that's all you needed. That's not the point. Yeah. But this is the extra sort of steps in here. And I like this dynamic we've got now because we've got someone who was professional when it was a lot earlier days MMA where you can get away with certain standards. Again, you got with by with what you needed to get by with. Whereas yeah. now I'm in the more the modern era of amateur MMA going into professional. And again, obviously not now, but like the, the spectrum of what you actually needed versus what you have available now and that sort of happy medium of what you actually want to use. Yeah. Um, so with this, uh, I'm called, maybe even a segment, why not? Anyone who wants to chime in with this, any sort of points you want us to cover, stuff you want us to go into. Again, this isn't stuff like we're overly like, quote unquote, qualified for, but it's the things we've got personal experience with, things we've been around, things we've had... The way, the way I want to explain this is we've stepped in some potholes. We want to tell you where they are. We're not going to say we know the whole road, but the ones we've traveled so far, we can help you out with. Yeah. Um, and that can all be found at Fisticuffs underscore podcast. Drop me any message you want. Same cast and name on Facebook, cast and Lenjoir on Instagram. Is there anything from you, my friend? That's it, man. No, no. Perfect. Again, we'll try and add this as a little segment at the end, more like a, not fighter advice as such, but again, the, the questions that you're expected to know the answers to. So yeah, anything like that, feel free to fire them away.